0: welcome to the musculoskeletal medicine podcast delivered by the faculty of sport and exercise medicine designed for the multidisciplinary community of clinicians working in musculoskeletal clinics throughout the uk In this series, I'll be interviewing a range of people from a wide variety of specialities and interest groups to bring together real-world advice and top tips to help us in our day-to-day practice. Each episode is designed to comfortably fit into the average time it takes to commute to work, which is apparently around 57 minutes and longer if you live in London, sorry about that, and will be packed with knowledge directly from people at the top of their field. So, whether you're a physiotherapist, a GP, hospital doctor, first contact practitioner or another clinician working with people living with musculoskeletal health concerns, you've come to the right place. My name is Giles Azan. I'm a GP working in the southeast of England, where I also work as a GP with an extended role in musculoskeletal medicine. Let's find out more about today's guest. So today's guest is Professor Graham Close, a former professional rugby league player now working as a Professor of Human Physiology at Liverpool John Moores University, where he leads the Sports Nutrition Master's Course. He's done a wealth of research focused around basic and applied sport nutrition and published well over 120 papers and review articles. Graham is accredited across the board uh, and is an expert nutrition consultant to England Rugby, Aston Villa Football Club, and is the lead nutritionist for the what was the European Golf Tour, but now named the DP World Tour Golf. Graham also appears regularly on television across uh, a range of uh, programmes, including Trust Me, I'm a Doctor, and appears on radio on a regular basis discussing nutrition for health and sports performance. So welcome, Graham. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Giles. It's, uh, it's great to be here, and hopefully we'll be able to have some uh, interesting conversations today. Absolutely and we've got a a few themes that we're going to work on but I guess I wanted to start off with asking you about your thoughts about the role of nutrition in musculoskeletal health in general.
1: Yeah well you're going to get a biased opinion here aren't you from from (laughs) myself being this has been my passion not only from um, my former days as a rugby player but now my professional life but I got interested in, in this field as an athlete because I quickly realised that of all the sports science disciplines, and I was doing a sports science degree at the time, this was the one that I felt an immediate benefit in, in my professional rugby career, and that wasn't only from helping me to achieve the body composition that I was looking to achieve as a as a pro player, but also how I felt during uh, and after games, particularly after games. I quickly realised that the way you fed yourself after a, a professional rugby match would be the difference between how you would wake up the day after and not. Yeah. And, and that led on to my, my PhD in sport nutrition and then all my professional life now working in sport nutrition. And then at the end of my PhD, I got a great opportunity to move from John Moore Sports Science to the University of Liverpool Department of Clinical Medicine where I was working with Professor Malcolm Jackson and Professor Anne McCardle on sarcopenia. So we're trying to utilize various physiological uh, techniques to prevent the age-related loss of muscle mass and function. And again, nutrition became a really key component of this. So whether it's from a, a human performance, an everyday living, or a maintenance of life quality,
0: I'm absolutely convinced that nutrition plays a fundamental role. And it's it's to date, certainly from my experience having trained as a GP, it's very poorly covered in traditional medical training, isn't it? There's a real paucity of understanding about this role of nutrition.
1: Yeah, especially if you think that of all the things you can do to the human body, I think most of us would agree that what we put inside our mouth has perhaps the most profound effects. Mm. And there's loads of examples of this. So you, you only need to think about omega-3 oil, in oily fish, which once we've eaten them, they're incorporated into the cell membranes of virtually every tissue. Mm. So this can have massive effects on cellular signaling, gene expression. So that's just one example of one nutrient that will change gene expression. You know, when we're doing protein studies, where we'll label a protein in the food, you eat that food, And then a few hours later, you know, you'll take the muscle biopsy and measure that protein now within your muscle. So you literally are what you eat. And I don't think it makes uh, it's too big of a step to say that if you literally are what you eat and what you're eating has the ability to change cellular signaling. Well, surely on a four or five times a day basis, we want to be giving our body the best possible chance of healthy aging rather than just putting any old junk into the system.
0: And it's one of those things, that I think that we've got a huge amount to learn from sports nutrition here, because I think it's something that's so well established in the world of sport, isn't it? These incremental gains that, that athletes can have. And it would be perhaps tempting to say, oh, well, look, this is all very relevant if you're wanting to you know, run a sub three-hour marathon or something. But the reality, of course, is that this maps across to day-to-day you know musculoskeletal conditions um which which have the, the potential for 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 improved self management and that's such a you know a, a key area that we're trying to develop amongst musculoskeletal health then nutrition has to be fundamental to that so it's you know it's not just about elite sport is it
1: no not at all there's um uh, an american scientist a good few years ago uh, called jack Lalane uh, and his mantra was always, exercise is king, nutrition is queen, and you put them together, you've yeah. got a kingdom. Um, <laughs> and, 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 I, you know, it's a great little quote that I really like, but if we yeah. can get the exercise and the nutrition right, then I think most people would agree that gives us the very best chance of uh, living a, a healthy life. Now, what I think we've got particularly good at in modern society is uh, extending lifespan. So we yeah. all need to see that the average age is increasing year on year. But I'm not convinced we've done a particularly great job in increasing active lifespan. So the number yeah. of years that we can spend free from major illness and disease. Yeah. Uh, and and I'm, I'm absolutely convinced and we, I'm sure we'll get onto sarcopenia today. But something like sarcopenia, I, I, I would argue that it is pretty much 100% avoidable. If we get the exercise and the nutrition right, so we've got that, one major debilitating disease, but I think is a hundred percent solvable just by a better understanding of a diet and
0: exercise. Brilliant. Well, that, that's just an awesome segue into what 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 our you know our our main topic is for this podcast, which is sarcopenia. The the now, why don't we start by can Can you give us a definition of what sarcopenia is?
1: Yeah, so it actually comes from uh, the Latin term poverty, uh, poverty of flesh, so sarco and pina. Um and, and the definition of it, you, you put a lot of biogerontologists in a room and they'll come out fighting, trying to define what actually is the correct uh, definition. But I go with the European consensus uh, on the definition and diagnosis of it. Uh, and this is where it's a syndrome characterized by a progressive and generalized loss of skeletal muscle, ma- uh, muscle mass and function. Now, people tend to stop it at that point. Mm-hmm. And at that point, when you would say, well, Luke, we're all gonna get sarcopenia because as we age, we know we're all going to get an age-related loss yeah. of muscle mass and function. But the second half of the quote goes on to say, with a risk of adverse health outcomes, such as physical disability, poor quality of life and death. And it's because of that second part that I would argue that it's completely preventable. Because, of course, you know, I'm getting nearer to 50 by the day, and all the evidence will tell me that from about the age of even mid 30s, I'm going to be losing uh, muscle fibers, and, and the size of the remaining fibers is going to get smaller. But because I train most days of my life and I really pay attention to my diet, I'm convinced that I will never become sarcopenic. Yes, I will lose muscle mass and function to an extent, but I will never, in my opinion, lose it to a point where it's going to result in physical disability and I'm not going to have the ability to do everyday tasks.
0: Because that's that's a really interesting distinction. And it's one where where you know we we can have the the accusation thrown at us in the medical community that we're over-medicalizing normal life changes, and, and there's a lot of different spheres in, in medicine that we, we can probably fairly rightly be accused of that, but that you're making a very clear distinction between a degree of change as you age, but it's that, as you said, it's that second part, it's the disability that goes along with it, which is not inevitable, and I think that's the point, isn't it, is that this is not an inevitable decline, we, we don't need to accept that.
1: Yeah, and there's a few um, examples that you can put to this so you can, it's maybe not the best or the most um the most obvious one but I use all the time. But if you think about Olympic weightlifting, so this is that event where you've got to take a very heavy weight and put it above your head. Hmm. Yes, the world record for a, is about a 20-year-old and it's around about 240 kilograms. But the record for an 80-year-old is 75 kilograms. Hmm. So yes that's substantially down from 240 whatever kilograms
0: mm.
1: but you can we have still got eight year olds who can get 75 kilograms off the floor and lift it mm. above the head yeah so yes we're going to lose some strength but we shouldn't get to the point where we've not got the strength to lift a kettle and make a cup of tea um, and that for me is what sarcopenia is this where your lack your loss of muscle mass and strength Results in catastrophic outcomes where you can't do everyday tasks or you can't get out of a chair unassisted, or God forbid if you fall over, you've not got the strength to get yourself back on your feet. There's 80-year-olds who can put 75 kilos above their head. You know, if we think about um from an endurance perspective, you know, the there's 70-year-olds who can do sub-three-hour marathons because they've maintained the ability. And one of my favorite studies was where we took um, a cross-section of uh, an 80-year-old compared it with a 20-year-old's muscle and obviously the 80-year-old yeah. looks horrendous and it, it's terrible but then if we compare that to an 80-year-old who's trained all the life it's almost impossible to differentiate it from a 20-year-old right and I think that's a really key thing but when we look at literature and, and even some of our animal studies if, if you look at the rodent literature these animals pretty much sit in a cage and don't move you know that isn't aging. That is looking at the effects of a lifetime of physical inactivity. And I think when when we're studying aging, the normal for me should be adults who've maintained some physical activity two or three times a week. For me, that's normal aging. And, and actually, sitting still and doing nothing your entire life, I think no, that's us creating a disease state. And we need to differentiate that from aging.
0: And and this you know the concept of you know these changes that happen over time and and, and the, I'm thinking about the prevalence, Graham. That we, we're dealing with a, a you know a, a clearly aging population. You know, a fifth of the UK population is now over the age of 65, and that that proportion of the population is getting higher and higher. And I I want to just emphasise what you've said about the the consequences of. Sarcopenia, so we can we can put it in that quite physiological format. But we're talking about people falling. We're talking about people injuring themselves. Tell me a little bit about those consequences. What we know about, um, you know, the the consequences of of the sarcopenia.
1: Yeah, well, we we know that once you get above uh, the age of seventy, but the consequence of falling, it becomes the biggest risk factor of premature death. So obviously, young people. The things like road traffic accidents, and um, you think everything we do to try and prevent that. But once you get to a certain age, the consequences of falling can be absolutely catastrophic. You know, if this results in a hip fracture, we know that a lot of people, after a hip fracture, will never return home to the house. will be discharged to a care home, and a lot of these people who are discharged to a care home will never leave that care home. And and then what comes with hip hip fracture and falls is the fear of falling, mm. which, again, can have profound effects where people become scared to leave the house because we know how catastrophic the fall was and how, how much uh, negative effect had on their life. And then we get people housebound for another reason they become even more inactive, mm. uh, and then all this just increases exponentially. It's a so snowball
0: effect, isn't it? Com- completely, yes. And this, I remember, so it sort of took me back to being an orthopedic junior sort of house officer in in, in the unit and I remember the statistics post of you know fractured neck of femur when somebody's had a fall the mortality within a year is something like a third of people isn't it that that die within a year of fractured neck of femur you know we're talking very real serious consequences of something which as you've identified already is a potentially avoidable condition
1: so yeah correct but about a third who will you know, unfortunately, die within twelve months is it, frightening. But on top of that, as we said, uh, around about half of those who have the hip fracture will be discharged to the care home, and about half of them will never leave. So from having quite a what would be a normal uh, existence, where we maybe you know doing some regular um, social events and having quite a a happy lifestyle. You've got a massive chance of premature death and then a massive chance of ending up in a care home. And again, as I said a few minutes ago, I would argue that this is really preventable with some basic uh, diet and exercise advice. And particularly from my perspective, diet, I, I think we get so many things really badly wrong when it comes to how we should eat as we get older. And if we get this right, I'm convinced we can have major effects on maintaining a healthy longevity
0: okay so so let's dive in then to think perhaps prior to talking about those nutritional interventions can you just just review for us what what, what's the physiology around sarcopenia what's happening that causes this this muscle loss then
1: (laughs) yeah we we could spend an entire podcast um on this and there's there's various theories, and and I, I don't know if anyone will be able to tell you hand on heart which one it is. People talk about the the oxidative stress theory of aging, where we're getting a a, a very small but profound increase or prolonged increase in reactive oxygen species, and that can maybe out, outnumber the antioxidant defense. That that theory is heavily debated with some people either side of it. A similar theory will be a chronic low-grade inflammation. Um, this may or may not be what causes shortening of the telomeres, so the, the DNA caps, uh, and that's certainly one thing that's been put out there. But what we do know is that, uh, and this was classic data from Jan Lexell back, um, oh, back in 1995, where they, they took road traffic accidents uh, and we're able to do postmortems and then measure the actual cross muscle cross-sectional area. And from the age of around about 30, we see a decrease in the muscle cross-sectional area and also a decrease in the total number of fibers. So we know that the, the fibers are decreasing, and there's probably not a great deal we can do about that, but what we think we can do quite a bit about is either prevent or hypertrophy the remaining fibers. To maintain that muscle cross-sectional area, so we can maintain uh, the muscle function. Yeah. Uh, and if I segue slightly into into nutrition here, what what we are very aware of is that if I was to give a younger person twenty grams of protein post exercise, we would get quite a good anabolic response to that protein feed. Uh, and this is where a lot of the RNI values have come for for protein intake. We know that in the elderly, that 20 grams probably needs to be closer to 40 grams. So we get something that's been termed anabolic resistance. So that anabolic effect of a protein feed uh, is attenuated as we get older. So actually, older people need more protein, probably in line with how we feed the athletes. But all the data suggests that as we get older, we get more of a sweet than a savory tooth. So we actually start to eat less protein-based foods. So at a time in our life when we need more we actually eat less and that could be a major contributor to why we're not seeing a preservation of muscle mass and if we don't preserve and that's muscle a really mass, that's
0: a really important yeah. point is that it, it, so it's 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 not just the intake and i'm just i'm just trying to translate yeah. this into my simpleton brain understanding of it, it it's that the what we what our body does with a certain load of protein is going to be different depending on how old we are correct is that Right. That's
1: that's absolutely correct. So, you know, the, when we give protein to a young person, we'll give around about twenty grams. We we've done the studies where you you increase this up, uh, without getting into too much detail. But on average, that's about a good amount. But will give a maximum anabolic response. So when you measure the fractional synthesis rate of of muscle protein, that will be ideal.
0: And when you say an anabolic response, we're talking about a measurable energy output is that
1: yeah so what we're measuring is the the incorporation of these proteins into the tissue right so and and when we give more than that rather than it going towards muscle protein synthesis and you can measure as a said, a fractional synthesis rate of protein what you then get is an increase in protein oxidation transamination deamination and then excretion so it's not going towards Um, building muscle building more muscle right and so that's where we come up with that's a good amount to give a young person Mm -hmm. when these studies were repeated and people like Stu phillips at mcmaster university has done some really good work here when you you repeat these studies in in older individuals suddenly no 20 grams isn't given anywhere near the same anabolic response to an older person but is it in a young person and it would appear but you almost need double that.
0: Well, so, why is that? What what's happening that stops us from using that protein for for muscle synthesis? Then,
1: yeah, again, you could spend an entire podcast right. debating this, and, and people are really trying to find out um, that answer to, to that question. And you know, I, I spent a bit of time looking. Was it related to insulin and insulin yeah. resistance and things like that? And and there could be a some contribution there but some of the work that i did but again some people would disagree but there's lots of speculated uh, theories of why the muscle becomes um resistant to to protein but i think the, the key takeaway is that it appears that it does yes but you can overcome it by feeding more
0: okay so, and, so and, talk- that, and that feeding more graham is it, again is a real problem in a population where Like you say, there's changes in appetite, there's changes, you know, sense of smell, sense of taste, even, you know, their dentition. There's loads of factors, aren't there, that contribute to it?
1: Yeah, of course, for that. And, And even the way that we traditionally eat protein. And this is where the link between athletes and general can become really fascinating. So, with athletes, what we try and do is achieve the daily protein needs and give it them in a really regular, well-spaced out prat- pattern. So we think about a lot of people in general society. They might wake up in a rush in the morning, quick cup of coffee, maybe a piece of toast on the go, rush off to work. If you're a hard working doctor, like a lot of your listeners will be, at best, you might be able to pick up a packet sandwich midday that might have a bit of wafer-thin ham on it, rush around even more, get home at night, and then you may have some chicken or some fish. So most of your protein has been backloaded in the day. Mm. What we know from an athletic perspective, the best thing for muscle is to give a regular amount about every four hours throughout the day. So we make sure our athletes have eggs or something like that at breakfast. We'll make sure that they have a mid-morning snack of maybe some Greek yogurt, that they'll have some fish at lunch. They may have some more yogurt or something like that mid-afternoon and then some chicken in the evening. So we're giving them protein regularly throughout the day. And when we think about the general population, um, we need to also think about the timing of our protein. So yeah. we're getting it consistently throughout the day, as well as the total amount of our protein. And unfortunately, as I said, with the elderly, or as we get older, we need that little bit more. And I don't think most older people, bit maybe I'm a bit sweeping statement here, do either of these things. I don't think they achieve yeah. enough. And I don't think they... They have it evenly distributed throughout the day because every time the body sees some amino acids from protein, that's where we get this increase in muscle protein synthesis. And then about four hours later, it drops again. So what we want to be doing is throughout the day, I'm doing little wavy lines that you can't see here, but what I'm trying to do is every about four hours, give the body a little spike, let it come back down again and give it another spike. And if we was to do that throughout lifespan, the chances are is we're going to hold on to that muscle mass for longer.
0: And is there a difference between the type of proteins you're taking? So you just mentioned about eggs, chicken, Greek yogurts. Is, is, uh, uh, you know, are all proteins made the same? Are some better absorbed and, and particularly in an older population? Is, is there, how, would you, how would you counsel people around that?
1: Yeah, so potentially we can start to talk about things like So an athlete would generally have a whey whey protein post-exercise, and that's not because it's a better, and I'm doing a little inverted yeah. yeah, yeah. um, but because we know that whey protein has a faster release of the amino acids in it. um, So you're going to immediately have an anabolic response to that, where other proteins might take a little bit longer to, to be digested and absorbed. But if we're talking about the general population, for me, it's variety. So okay. um, we, we used to say that plant proteins were incomplete sources of amino acids. So certain plant proteins so um, might be a little bit low in a specific amino acid. That's only really important if you only ever eat peas. But if you right. eat peas and grains, by the end of the day, you're going to have all the essential amino acids anyway. Yeah. Um, so for me unless we're really dialing it in with an elite athlete who's got everything else right in the diet, uh, I would be more concerned on the total amount of the protein rather than really homing in or on the
0: type. And if you're, so, so, so if we're not dealing with you know, helping Mrs. Miggins get to lift her 75 kilos above her head, but just your average older person, how do you, I mean, Tell me how you'd go about describing that to a patient. What would you say to to kind of capture what we've discussed there?
1: Yeah, I think the first thing is to make sure that there's an awareness of what are the protein-rich foods. Yes. So so I would start off by explaining that your muscle actually is protein, and when you eat that protein, it's going into a muscle. Your muscle, I mean, a guy called Luke Van Loon, who's one of the greatest uh, sports scientists we have, who does a lot of work. He always says, take a good look at your arm, because in 60 days' time, that won't be the same arm. All them muscle proteins will have been broken down and rebuilt. So I try and explain that concept, but actually we're constantly breaking down muscle and rebuilding it. And we're rebuilding it by the foods that we eat. And the only foods that we eat that will rebuild it are the protein-based foods. So I really try and drive home why that's important. So if we're breaking down the muscle and we're not replacing it with the protein-based foods, of course, it's going to get smaller. If we're breaking down the muscle and we increase our protein-rich foods, we've got a chance of it getting bigger. So whatever protein-rich foods? And then the next thing I explain is this is constantly happening. So, and and the analogy I use with a lot of people is if you imagine a brick wall and on one end of a brick wall, you've got somebody knocking bricks off and on the other end of a brick wall, you've got somebody building it. Hmm. Well, what we need is to keep giving the person on the guy building it as many bricks as possible so they can do it faster than the person knocking it down so i try and get these concepts across and then i try and say um we need to do it regular and then it's like look it's dead simple you know what foods do you like eating in a morning do you like eggs do you like milk do you like yogurt yeah do me a favor make sure every morning there's some of these foods in your breakfast and that we'd get out of the habit of just having a cup of tea and a piece of toast yeah okay what foods do you like eating at lunch do you like salmon do you like things like that okay let's think about a piece uh, about the size of a deck of cards and that'll be good enough okay mm. what foods do I like mid-afternoon and then let's go back to old school can i get you to have a glass of milk pre-bed yeah. you know you, and actually if you think about it we're talking about trying to help all the people here. Well, yeah. actually, this is the same diet advice my grand used to give me. Exactly. So we're just going back to what grandma used to teach yeah. us. But actually, perhaps grandma stopped doing to herself. Yeah. You know, like a glass of milk pre-bed, uh, eggs in the morning. It, yeah. You know what I mean? It's all, you know, quite basic stuff that we just need to get into better habits.
0: Yeah. And and so in terms, I mean, that's brilliant. I, I, it's always great listening to how people actually have those conversations. Um the point then where where you go next with this in terms of information you give people so so where would you because I I think you know I like most people get a bit confused about all the different foodstuffs and the you know those that are protein rich and and the right balances is there a particular source or resource you send people to, to to find out more information about that
1: yeah. Do you know what? There really isn't great. And that's part of the problem. You, you know, most people are Dr. Google these days. Aren't yeah. They? And that really scares me, but um, mm. that we've got so much bad information on the internet, you know, my utopia, my dream is a, uh, you know, I've recently had the email from my doctor's surgery that now you're north of 40, do you want to come and get your 40 year old wellness check? Mm. How good would it be that after you've had that wellness check, in the next room, I said there is a, a dietitian or a sport nutritionist. There. Would you like ten minutes with them? And yeah. then after they've seen them, as next door was an exercise scientist. Would you like ten minutes with them? Yeah. So actually, at a point of care, we've got people who are specialised in this, and it doesn't always fall on the GP who yeah. may or may not have had limited training in this. So, so I dream of this day that we we have that, you know, and, and until that day comes. That's where things like podcasts like this are, are absolutely essential, uh, that we can try and get that good information.
0: Well, it's um, basic, it's basic advice, isn't it? And I think it's like say, that's why I love the analogies, like you said, of, uh, you know, look at the arm, think about the wall being built and knocked down simultaneously. These are, these are sort of fairly commonplace, easy to understand concepts. Um, and like you say, understanding that it's eating a little bit more like the way you, you were when when you were a nipper. You know, it's the eggs at breakfast, last meal before bed, and and obviously what we haven't really s- described in any great depth there is that the this needs to go hand in hand with some resistance training, right? It's with some some exercise to to complement that with the nutrition side.
1: Yeah, I, I, exactly. Because as we said before, you know, if exercise is half of the equation and nutrition is the other half, then it makes sense that we get both of them right. And wh- when we hear about resistance training, and people immediately think of going into a gym, and maybe I shouldn't have to use the analogy for of a seventy year old putting seventy five kilos over the head. Mm. But what we're talking is actually things that you could even do within the house, whether it's body weight squats, whether it's you know the old fashioned press ups, just making sure we've got the ability to get up and down off the floor. But more and more gyms now are Catering for uh, ageing, and as we get older, and there are now lots of really good PTs who are qualified yeah. in delivering this, and it can actually become a really fun environment. I, I'm yeah. a huge fan of things like Pilates, and yoga, uh, and these movements. Where we we, we get us, we're working on our flexibility and our strength at the same time, uh, and and I think from a social aspect as well, they can be amazing so if i was recommending anything to anyone i would be seeing it is there, is there a local pilates or yoga or you know that type of facility available to you where you can go in there work on your mobility work on your strength in a nice calm controlled, relaxed manner and they can have amazing effects on our long-term health
0: and that and that speaks to the fact that this is quite a broad. Impact in that you know fundamentally highlights this is about quality of life, but it's it's all those other subtleties that go alongside it, which can equally have an impact on sarcopenia. So it's it's the issues with isolation, it's it's you know social social isolation in the elderly, the the fairly significant rates of depression, you know comorbid depression um, in older people, which is is very often underdiagnosed and undertreated by us in primary care. So, so you know, th- this sort of approach, we're actually saying it's ticking a lot of different boxes. Um, and I, I, I suppose i would throw into the mix as a GP that it, it's incumbent on us to, to look again at the, the existing medical treatments that might get in the way of decent nutrition and exercise. When you think about the side effects from, you know, painkillers that might cause constipation, you've got... You know, anorexia with with things like um, some of the antidepressant groups, um, sort of anticholinergic effects, dry mouth. There's so much in terms of unintended consequences of medical care as people get into the the, the later stages of life that it may be that there's a there's a, a, a fairly uh, significant degree of iatrogenic um, you know drivers for for poor nutrition and exercise. So it's it is the it's this whole it's very much a holistic approach isn't it
1: yeah you know i go back to like you know we, we talk about exercise and nutrition as being a drug and i don't know if i like or don't like that analogy but what i do passionately believe is if we get our exercise and i uh, a nutrition right well then we have invented a drug that as the ability to improve your mental health, your physical health, mm. your muscle strength, prolong lifespan, so many things. And, and if you think that the average cost to bring a new drug to market is $2.6 mm. I would be arguing that we can't afford not to be putting facilities in place in primary care to help educate everybody around the benefits of diet and exercise. We're desperate to find an exercise pill. Well, 2.6 billion is the average cost to bring a new drug to market. So whilst people are trying to find this pill that may or may not do some things that exercise do, you're right, it will never be as good as the the social side of it. You know, when you join uh, a yoga group of like-minded people where you'll spend a bit of time in the company at the end, Mm -hmm. maybe sit and have a drink together. Um, You know, often these clubs will have extra social activities along with it and you're right you know the social isolation is, is something that again i'm really passionate about and and that's why i'm a huge fan of golf for a um for a health perspective we have got some physical activity of the walking we've got the social side of it we've got some strength work from just even bending over picking up the ball etc yeah. so it, for me, it really doesn't matter. We need to get people to find what's fun for them that yeah. has a social side to it. And I think if we do that, we'll have profound effects on physical and mental health.
0: That's it. The be- The best exercise is the one you're going to keep doing, right?
1: The one that you're going to keep doing with a smile on your face. Yeah. yeah. You know, and there's That's enough it. stress in this world. So let's find something that you enjoy. And, you know, I think people hear the word exercise and they think jogging or yeah. lifting weights in a gym. And they don't realise that things like yoga, things like golf, things like gardening, um, going for group walks with friends, you know, we've got, you know, this big campaign, the Daily Mile of just trying to get a miles with of walking, jogging, whatever done. We've got park runs, which have been amazing. You don't need to run it. You can go and walk it. You know, there's a social side to it all. Yeah, we just need to stop thinking of exercise as, jogging or lifting weights and start thinking of it as anything that increases heart rate that has a social side to it
0: fantastic graham this is brilliant i'm i want to i want to bring this section to a close and but but i want to i want to look now at what you you would see as the key take-home points for the the average uh, clinician who's going to be seeing older people thinking now after having heard you talk about sarcopenia about what can I do differently what would you see are the three sort of three key take-home points uh, for for us about sarcopenia
1: yeah well I think the first take-home point is that prevention is better than cure Mm -hmm. and we need to start having these conversations probably from the age of 40 not when people are coming in at 70 you know, I, I'm feeling unstable on my feet. So I think we need to start it early. Um, you know, we, we did do some research in, in John Moore's were, yes, we can get some things back by starting training in our 70s, but that's nowhere near as good as preventing this from happening. So prevention is better than cure. The second thing I would try and get across is that the fundamental role that diet plays in this and an awareness that, our dietary habits change um hugely and, and then the the third thing I would say is that this awareness that as we get older the the physical inactivity goes absolutely through the roof mm. uh, and we know that um in both males and females, and I'm pretty sure unfortunately it, it, the um the evidence suggests that it's even more profound in uh, In females, that right. the amount of people even hitting the minimum amount of exercise a week is a minor percentage. And once we leave school, our physical activity levels decline beyond comprehension. So right. if we know physical activity declines and our diet becomes poorer and we're not getting the nutrition we need, it's no wonder that we're confronted. With a plethora of of diseases,
0: and I think, thank you, Graham. That that's fantastic. Some really, really important, powerful points to make, and it's been so helpful to hear you describe your approach to it. And and it, you know, even some of the, the the relatively simple advice that we talked about about spreading protein during the day, looking for that consistency, the variety of proteins um eating a little bit more like our grandparents used to um i think there's some fantastic take home some of those analogies do, you described will be really helpful in day-to-day practice so I'll, I'll, i'm going to wrap up by just thanking you so much for being part of this um and i really appreciate your time
1: oh, it's been a fascinating conversation and if anyone's uh, any of your colleagues hear this and would, would like to reach out to me i'm always happy to try and um, find time and, and help
0: in any way I can. Fantastic. And and Graham, what's what's the best way for people to look you up? Are you on Twitter? You're, you're, what's your uh, social media presence?
1: Yeah, I probably spend a bit too much time on social media <laughs> for my mental health, if I'm being honest. Um, but I can be found on Twitter with it's Close underscore nutrition. Instagram is just Close Nutrition. Or if you prefer the good old way, if you just Google Graham Close, Liverpool John Moles University, You'll find um, my email and contact details and all that on the university website.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much. No problem. Thanks for your time.